Hey guys, I am so excited to announce that um, with this episode, my nine songs inspired by the nine Enneagram types begin to release. But before we dive into the Enneagram, what it is, why I chose to write a song for each of the nine unique types and debut the very first of that series, which is called One, I wanted to briefly follow up on the last episode. Uh, I introduced you guys to my new song, Cassini, which is part of my uh, new astronomy series of songs inspired by astronomical events. So since that episode uh, released, the spacecraft Cassini itself actually completed its mission um, by literally crashing into the planet Saturn. I still can't get over how amazing that is, but I had the incredible privilege of being able to attend the the farewell party over at JPL NASA in Pasadena, California, uh, during the the actual crash of Cassini to celebrate the life of the spacecraft and especially the people that made it possible. Um, So I've never been to JPL and had the best time. It was so cool. I I woke up at about one in the morning to drive from Anaheim to to Pasadena to to attend this, uh, which began at like 3 a.m. And it was an incredible experience to be alongside uh, the mission leads and so many people that were involved in this this beautiful and uh, historic mission that Cassini was on. I want to thank Joby Harris for making that possible. He was the one who uh, who encouraged myself as well as Sarah Schrackner and Joseph Trapanese to compose music for Cassini, inspired by Cassini. And it was just such an honor. He was the one who uh, let us have that opportunity to be to be there during the final moments. So huge thank you to you, Joby. Uh, I loved, loved, loved getting to know Joby through that process and feel so grateful to call him a friend. And if you guys haven't already, please check out the the music video that was put together for my Cassini song. It belongs to a playlist of three videos. The first one uh, is set to my piece of Cassini music, and the second is for Sarah Schrackner's amazing piece. She composed music for Call of Duty, Assassin's Creed, and one of my very favorite shows, Chef's Table, on Netflix. And then lastly, the third video is uh, for the incredible Joseph Trapanese's piece who was the composer on the film Straight Outta Compton, Oblivion, Tron Legacy, uh, and a whole bunch more. Um, and I got to spend a bit of time with each of them, and they are such lovely people, and it was such a privilege to get to create music alongside them uh, for this Cassini event and mission. So I hope you will check out all three of those videos. Um, the link is, of course, in the show notes. All right, guys, let's let's talk about the Enneagram. As I mentioned at the top, this uh, this episode of the podcast marks the very beginning of my series of nine songs inspired by the nine Enneagram types. As you may know, I've been working on these songs for quite a while now, so thank you so much for your patience. Uh, I've been researching and learning everything I can about this wonderful tool for empathy that is called the Enneagram. And I'm just so excited to finally begin to share these new songs with you starting today with, uh, with this very first song of the series called One. Each of the nine songs will release in the coming months, and with each song, there will be a podcast episode, uh, like the one you're listening to, in which I will pull each song apart and talk about what I've learned and put into all of these songs, including the fingerprints of my friends and family. I will explain what that means a little later in this episode. And my dear friend and Enneagram wizard, Chris Hewitts, will join me on each episode to provide an overview of each of these corresponding types. He'll explain the what and the why of each type. So please be sure to subscribe 
And I'm just so, so excited to finally begin this series and uh, to have each of these songs finally be released into the wild and to have this chance to share with you why I wrote what I wrote. Also, I'm proud to announce that in celebration of this first song's release, we've partnered up with, uh, with my friends at The Giving Keys to create a key necklace inspired by my one song, which you're about to hear in a little bit here. Uh, the key is imprinted with the word grace, which is the key word of this new song, as you will learn in just a little bit, to honor the Enneagram One type. It's available now in our store, so please check that out. There's a link in the show notes. All right. Many of you may already know what the Enneagram is, and in some circles, you may be completely tired of hearing about it. But a lot of you may not know anything about it at all. So for those of you entirely unfamiliar, I thought it'd be a really fitting way to introduce you to the Enneagram through my friend Chris Hewart, who introduced me to the Enneagram about five or six years ago. Uh, Chris wrote a book uh, that just came out. Uh, It is an incredible book called The Sacred Enneagram, and I truly cannot sing its praises enough. Please, please, please go check it out. It will lead to better understanding of yourself and of those that you love most in your life. So again, that is called The Sacred Enneagram by Chris Hewart. So Chris, can you please give us the elevator pitch version of the Enneagram? What is it? Sure. So I like to describe the Enneagram as our ego set of coping addictions that we've wrapped up around our childhood wounds so that we actually don't have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. And and essentially what these coping addictions, these defense mechanisms do is it creates this scaffolding around the projection of our own ego mythology. So what I mean by that is actually this. A lot of people reduce the Enneagram down to a a personality tool, a way to sort of size people up into sort of nine different sort of buckets of quirks and eccentricities and and foibles. Um, What I'm afraid of, though, is that's more about our personality and less about our essence. And so when we really approach the Enneagram with with truthfulness, it it becomes a tool for excavating essence. It helps us sort of take the masks off and set these down. It helps us realize that, that we're much more than our personality and it helps us be honest in, in the parts of our lives where we've allowed fragments to lay claim to the whole of who we truly are. It also shows us the nine human archetypes for, for character structure and uh, how we really get to rest in the gift of our character as our essence comes forward. What that means then is, is there's nine ways of being us in the world. There's nine mirrors to our soul that if we have the, the courage to look into, um, there's something that looks back at us. And what I sort of like to, to say about these nine mirrors, these these nine types, is that type one strives for, for principal excellence as moral duty. Types two strive for lavish love through self-sacrifice. Types three strive for appreciative recognition through curated successes. Type four strives for discovery of identity for their own faithful authenticity. Type five strive for decisive clarity through thoughtful conclusions. Type sixes strive for steady constancy through confident loyalty. Type 7 strives for imaginative freedom for inspirational independence. Types 8, we strive for impassioned intensity for our own unfettered autonomy. And type 9, strive for harmonious peacefulness as congruent repose. Man, what a beautiful and thoughtful description of the Enneagram. Uh, I have to admit, even uh, after we recorded this interview, I went back and listened to that several times because even after researching for these last uh, six or seven years, 
Chris's basic description of the Enneagram is a deep pool to dive into. So um, I encourage you to listen back, uh, th- especially through those nine types. But we will we will dive deeper into the one type in just a moment here with Chris. But I did want to ask him what type he resonates and identifies with. Sure. So I'm I'm dominant in type A, and uh, and that's you know for those of us who are dominant in type A, it's it's pretty hard for folks to be around us when we're not taking care of ourselves and doing well. But man, for all of us in nine different ways, it's pretty hard for us to be with ourselves and to actually admit and own our type because when we do come to the gift of our type, it, it really exposes these, these fractures in our souls, these stress fractures. It, it really sort of exposes to us the ways that we've parked a lot of our ego consciousness in our shadows. And uh, that's a huge bummer because... Uh, most of us park stuff in our shadows consciously, subconsciously, or unconsciously because it's the stuff that we don't want to face, we don't know how to face, we don't want to deal with, or we don't know how to deal with it. But this is this is one of the invitations, the sweet invitations of, of what the Enneagram can also help us sort of grow into and, and grow out of. We're going to hear a little bit more from Chris um, throughout this episode. When I first was introduced to the Enneagram through Chris, I was entirely skeptical. I love Chris, and so I gave him my utmost respect in listening to um, him explain what what the Enneagram is. But honestly, my personal experience with any sort of personality typing, it always kind of felt like an excuse to be a certain way. Uh, Like, well, it says that I'm this way, I must be this way, which felt like a brick wall. Uh, But the Enneagram is entirely different. It shows us why we do what we do, where our brokenness comes from. And uh, more importantly, through understanding ourselves better, it shows us our gifts, what our very best looks like. And what gave it credibility to me outside of it ringing true in so many areas of my life and relationships after uh, after Chris had first explained it is that it begins with honesty, exposing all of our ugly stuff first as, as you read up on each type in, in an attempt to identify which of the nine types you may recognize yourself. You will mostly be reading about the baggage and brokenness of each type. Not that I enjoy negativity at all, um, but for a tool that is meant to teach us a, a deeper understanding of who we are, I think it's really, really important that honesty and vulnerability is on the forefront. So as we dive in deeper, read more books on the Enneagram, like Chris's The Sacred Enneagram, we begin to see beyond the faults and the trouble that surround us. And we see each type for the staggeringly beautiful and significant beings that we are. All that to say, over the years, the Enneagram has meant a whole lot to me and my marriage and um, has, I would say, enhanced every relationship that I have. It has been a beautiful and helpful tool in uh, understanding the hard inner work that I need to be doing in my life. And I, I find that it's a it's a tool for empathy. I think at its, at its best, um, as you learn about each of the nine types, you start to understand why the people you love do what they do for better or worse. And for me, that has opened up my heart quite a bit. So I do not take the huge responsibility of writing a song for each of the nine types lightly. I so, so, so deeply want to honor each type and write something worthy of the unique perspective um, that each type possesses. So the songs are titled by the number of the type, and though there are handles for each type, like the um, the one type is often called the perfectionist or the reformer, but as my friend Chris points out, the numbers are far less judging than any name or handle. So I went with uh, titling these songs by their number. So if you'll allow it, I'm going to go off into the weeds a little bit here and explain my Atlas project and how the Enneagram fits into the, the whole of Atlas. 
As I was sorting out my Atlas project plans, laying out each of the thematic ideas I had in, in a specific order, I knew that the Enneagram had to play some sort of role. Um, I may have mentioned in past, but for those of you that don't know uh, about the overarching concept of Atlas, uh, it, it is an ongoing series of songs that I'm writing inspired by the origins of all things. So year one of the project began with these themes, darkness, which represents the unknown, light, which represents the start of the universe and all things, space, which represents our solar system, land, which represents our tiny home amongst the stars via the, the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, and then the oceans, which represents our five oceans on this earth. Uh, and water leads to life, of course, which begins Atlas year two. So year two is all about human development. It's actually more specifically about involuntary human development. So it's the ingredients that we are born with. So I wrote a song called Life, and one called Son, and one called Daughter, and then five songs for the five senses, as well as four songs for the four basic human emotions. And all of these things uh, we received upon arriving on this planet by no choice of our own whatsoever. And the more I learned about the Enneagram, I realized that uh, it is believed by, by many uh, Enneagram scholars that we were, we were born with our type. And I, I happen to believe that as well, that it's, that it's um, already wired into us at birth. And so that felt like the, the perfect bridge between the theme of involuntary human development and, uh, and of course, what is to come in year three of, the, of this Atlas series, which is voluntary human development. So rather than involuntary, it is voluntary. And it's the things we do with each of those ingredients that we were given. So with all of those things we dream, we love, we create, and all of that will come later in this series, of course. But the Enneagram bridges the two points of our development. Uh, it is the lens through which we uh, see ourselves and those around us. And uh, that is why the Enneagram felt entirely essential to this project. And not to mention, I have just become very, very fascinated by um, everything I've learned about the Enneagram. So it felt like a, like a perfect fit for um, not only in uh, conceptually bridging, bridging the pieces together, but also just to kind of um, meet me personally where I'm at and, um, and the passions that I have. So uh, that is why I am writing the nine songs for the nine unique and beautiful Enneagram types. And on, on each of these Enneagram songs, I aim to write from the perspective of each particular type. So as an example, for the one song, which we're about to hear, I'm so sorry, it's taken a little while to get there, but there's just so much information that I wanted to share with you. Uh, on that song, I'm trying to write from the perspective of the one type. And even though I am a nine, I, I wanted to learn everything I possibly could about the one types and how they think and how they see themselves in the world and, and how they see the world. So uh, I, I did as much research as I possibly could. I had the incredible privilege of getting to learn from Chris Hewitt's as well as uh, Father Richard Rohr and several other Enneagram teachers and thought leaders. So I, I really tried and will continue to try through each of these nine songs uh, to honor these types and to um, to sing as personally but as, as truthfully as I know how to uh, in understanding and inhabiting uh, the mind of each of these incredible Enneagram types. So my friend Chris graciously agreed to give a small overview of the one type. So before we listen to the song, I wanted him to explain to you uh, either as a refresher, if you're already familiar, or um, as an introduction to what, what do, how does the one type think? Uh, so for context, here's Chris explaining uh, the one. 
So folks who are dominant in type one are, are probably some of the most principled people that that you know, because their their standard for integrity is 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 set so high that it really leads to this sort of inner ache of, of frustration. And that frustration comes from the idealism that that the world needs to be perfect, that 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 good needs to be celebrated, that that everything that should be aligned must be aligned. And for folks who are dominant in type one, they actually take a lot of the, the the pressure and the responsibility on that for themselves. And so they try to be better. They strive harder to be to improve themselves and, and everything that they're a part of. Now, it, it's it's hard for folks who are dominant type one, especially if they're in a relationship, if they have a partner, if they're in a community or a team, because when somebody doesn't live up to their role, when somebody sort of drops the ball, when when somebody sort of fails to contribute their best. The ones actually even over-identify with that sort of malformation or diminishment, and, and they take it upon themselves. Um, it's hard for them, that, that, that sort of personal sense of, of moral duty, that, that, that personal sense of moral obligation um, becomes this, this, this voice, this loop in their minds, which really is enhanced and, 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 and turned up by their, their inner critic, right? Their, their super ego, all their, their oughts and their shoulds. And it sounds like criticism. And so they're constantly, constantly second guessing the words they use, the, the quality of their performance. They're, they're always criticizing themselves. And if we, we know this about folks who are dominant type one, actually what it, it necessarily needs to lead us to is, is a tremendous sense of compassion for them. Because like I said, they really are the, the best people we know. They, they really are some of the, the, the most integrous folks who have such clarity um, who who really manage their own emotions, who who for the good or the bad of it repress their own anger, um, but it's that that frustrated idealism that 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 really is their invitation to rest. Now, what's a huge bummer, and and this is true for every single enneagram type, is that we have a basic fear, and we know that fears are our lies. We know that we we don't have to believe or listen to our fears because they're 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 telling us something that's that's a little bit off, if not entirely untrue. And, and what's really heartbreaking for, for those of us who have friends in our lives who are dominant type one is that they're actually um, terrified. Their basic fear is that they are somehow inherently corrupt. And uh, if you're dominant type one, you, you need to sort of let yourself off the hook because you're not. In fact, you're the one who reminds us of what is good. You're the one that brings the serenity of that goodness, excellence, integrity, and, and principled sort of fidelity forward. And, and you... um can can really trust yourself let's play the song i i so hope you enjoy it and if you happen to be an enneagram one i am utterly terrified and and also at the same time so 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 excited to show you i hope somehow there's a little bit of you and your truth in in this song and i hope uh, that i did some sort of justice to uh to to your beautiful and um unique personality I believe that we can fix this over time That every imperfection is a lie Or at least an interruption Now hold on, let me finish No, I'm not saying perfect exists in this life we we'll only 
Okay, so let's let's take this song apart. Well before I had any melodies or any of the actual parts that you're listening to, um, I, I kept trying to think like what what does the one just musically sound like without words, without explaining any of the thought or or uh, perspective of the one? What 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 how how would the music uh, if if I could think of like a, it, it is a score? Like what would what would the music sound like? And so. I wrote down uh, just a few titles of songs or pieces of music that in, in one way or another uh, sort of melodically or uh, tonally uh, made sense in my mind uh, to, as fitting to the one. Um, the first of which was the theme song for the show, The West Wing. And then continuing the the Aaron Sorkin inspiration there, um, I also noticed that the, the newsroom theme for uh, Aaron Sorkin's newsroom also had this uh, this very similar triumphant um, urgent sounding music and I just thought okay that's I think that there's something in that something something there resonates with the one type and so I wrote down several other songs and and I noticed that a common thread between each of these pieces that I was listing out was that many of them were in the key of C and I thought that's kind of a perfect description for uh, the one type in in that it is it's very traditional. It's very tidy and organized. If you look at it on the piano, it is literally all of the front keys. And so um, that was my, my, my starting point for this song, as I knew, okay, first of all, this song needed to be written in the key of C. 
and um, I needed to make sure that it upheld that triumphant and urgent and um, orderly type of music. And I, that was the that was the beginning piece uh, to unlocking this song for me. So again, well before any melodies were written, I, I decided to add another rule into the, the writing of this song. Uh, so in addition to the song being written in the key of C, I knew that this song had to be in the tempo of 120 BPM. Uh, and the reason behind this was, again, another nod to the personality of the one, which is uh, uh, it is every recording software that I've ever used and uh, pretty much anything musical. Traditionally, uh, the default tempo is 120 BPM. And so I love that because it's sort of like the golden standard of, of tempos. So uh, another reason that I chose 120 for this song is because... The one types can be very time conscious and prompt. And so 120 divided by two is 60. And so if you played this song against a clock ticking, you would hear uh, them being in perfect sync. I love the idea of um, uh, the 120 BPM kind of nodding to not only the the one's appreciation of time uh, and timeliness, and then also the standard and traditional aspect of the 120 BPM tempo. And as a side note, uh, the clock that you just heard is uh, buried within the rhythm of the song. So um, if you listen closely, you can hear it kind of weave in and out uh, throughout the song. So as I've heard my friend Chris point out several times, uh, you miss so much of the Enneagram's depth and beauty when you focus only on the caricature of each type. Because as you learn about the Enneagram, you will certainly come across all of the idiosyncrasies and quirks that um, each of the nine types possess. And that is incredibly fun because you start to recognize yourself and you start to recognize uh, people that you know and love and you start to be able to poke fun at each of these like uh, kind of goofy, uh, less hurtful, broken parts of us. <laughs> and so um, you miss the points when you focus only on the caricature. So uh, one of the things I hope to accomplish in these songs is uh, to veer away from caricature as much as I possibly can in the in the heart and content of the song itself. So you won't hear much of the caricature in the lyrics or in the intent and story of the song. But as I just mentioned, uh, by being in the key of C and by uh, uh, the 120 BP and uh, the appreciation of time and things like that. I, I, I decided that the best way to approach caricature, because it is truly such a fun aspect of each of these personality types, is to sort of hide them in the instrumentation and in the rules of the songs. So uh, as an example, all the drums that you hear in the one song are recorded with cleaning supplies. <laughs> so in the one's ongoing uh, effort to uh, live in a perfect world and make the world around them perfect, I thought it's it's kind of an interesting, uh, fun way to approach drums uh, is to record mops and brushes and every cleaning supply I could find in our house. So it was a lot of fun. And so the drums that you hear uh, throughout this whole song are entirely made out of cleaning supplies, uh, even though it is a caricature of the one type and is truly not defining of the type itself or the heart of the person. Uh, but it is a fun little Easter egg that I that I threw in there. Um, so all the drums you hear, which kind of sound like clapping, are uh, mops and brooms and brushes and uh, cleaning supplies. So over the past decade plus of making music, I have uh, generally avoided over editing my music. I want there to be a looseness and an authenticity and uh, a realness to the to the songs. And I want I want things to 
kind of slide and glide around and there are some intentionally off uh, sounding tunings or, or drums or whatever it may be. And this is always a conscious effort. I mean, I'd like for it to be a conscious effort, but sometimes things just aren't played great. <laughs> but um, for this song, I sort of reversed that rule. And I, I, wanted to, I wanted to lean into my perfectionistic part of myself because I'm a nine and I could honestly work on the same edit and same piece of music for my entire life. I would drive myself totally crazy and would not enjoy myself in any way, shape or form, but I could do it because I, there's, there's a part of me that is just eternally unsatisfied with the, the results of my performances. So for this song, I let myself lean into that as much as I possibly could. So I uh, let myself look at every single piano note, and I, I, I wanted to fix the timing of every single thing. So I, I really combed through this song over and over and over uh, to make sure that it, it, it could be its most perfect-sounding um, edit. And, you know, I, I, I don't at all claim that this song is perfect by any means far from it. Um, but I allowed myself to be a perfectionist here as a, as a subtle nod to, uh, to that handle of the one type. And again, lastly, uh, before I actually began writing the melodies, um, this is, this is sort of the, the other rule that I put into place. So we have the key of C, we have the 120 BPM and we have the, um, edited and perfectionistic type of production. And, uh, another thing that I, I just knew that I wanted to incorporate into this song was I wanted the length of the song to be short and concise. I feel like that is, that is one part of the one personality is that they are to the point. And so I wanted the song to reflect that as well. So you will notice that the song length is shorter than uh, a typical Sleeping at Last song. And so it comes in at three minutes and 23 seconds. So it is a brief and to the point song. And that was, uh, that was another one of my rules. I needed to keep it in the lower threes. Bridging between that idea, um, I also wanted to practice as much restraint as I possibly could throughout the production. And I mentioned that I wanted to let myself kind of go to town on perfecting and editing as much as I could, but I also wanted to make sure that I did not add layers just to add layers. I wanted to make sure every single layer of the song had its place. And um, all of that is meant to be uh, concise and precise. And uh, I wanted to make sure that nothing felt too indulgent because I think that ones are so principled and self-controlled. So all, all of these things basically point to uh, the very obvious aspect of the one, which is the one values correctness. They, they value being right and not necessarily for their own ego or for their, for the, for themselves, but they, they value right over wrong. And so I, I wanted to value that, uh, that idea in this songwriting. So I, I, that's why I chose all of these different limitations and rules on this song is to, uh, to hopefully capture a little bit of the spirit of the one type in the music well before it was even written. So the song begins with that arpeggiated piano. So through the lens of a one, I imagined that this crazy world and life that we get to live is um, is probably magnified uh, to the one, and so I wanted to uh, reflect that in the in the kind of the chaos of those piano notes. Um, there's a lot of notes being played, and then they're also being played in very quick succession, and so I liked the idea of starting the song on this like almost slightly out of control. 
place. And then uh, the vocal comes in and disrupts it and basically stops the arpeggiated piano and um, interrupts it. So the one is essentially fixing the chaos around them. Hold on for a minute, because I believe that we can fix it. Over time. So before I did as much research as I did about the the one type, and uh, before I began writing this song, I I would have probably said that I I have the least in common with the one type, which is which is ironic because as I was learning and writing this song, I just I, I there was a there was a moment where a key turned and all of a sudden I recognized that I have a pretty pretty severe one wing and I can I can relate to so much of the experience of the one um and so it was it was actually kind of a um again using the Enneagram as a tool for empathy it 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 kind of broke my heart for the one types and I think the thing that did it was knowing that uh typically their inner critic is so much more aggressively judgmental and intense than they are to anyone else so they are harder on themselves than they are to the rest of the imperfect world they look at themselves as um as people that need to earn grace and uh, once I started thinking about that, that sort of unlocked like the entire story of of this song. I wanted to, I wanted to write it as a conversation. So it's from the perspective of a one, and um, as you hear in the lyrics, it sounds very much like I'm I'm speaking to somebody and explaining my position and my perspective. The, the concept actually behind that is it's not speaking to somebody. It's actually the the one type finally having a conversation directly with their own inner critic. So if you read or listen to the lyrics from that perspective, you will uh, you will hear the one type interrupting itself. It's almost like correcting itself as it's going, and then it's also arguing against the correction of, of the inner critic too. So that was like the genesis of the of the the lyrics and again the thing that struck me is um that inner critic i i relate to that so much i mean there's there is a negative voice inside me that carries over every single piece of art that i create or i mean even right now as i said the word art I've, my inner critic is like don't be arrogant what you do is not necessarily art, <laughs> which, which I, I can, I can voice out loud that I, um, I, you know, I'm very proud to, to be able to create the, the music that I create. But there, like I said, there's, there's this inner critic that has such a huge role in my life and knowing that that is a, a key, uh, defining part of the one type was, was kind of, um, it was surprising and it helped me, I think, empathize and, uh, also relate to, um, the experience of the one, uh, to, to go through life and, constantly feel like you have to earn love or favor or grace from everyone around you that is so tiring and so exhausting and so um the word that kept kept coming back and uh into my head as i learned about the one was grace because i think grace not only describes like the elegant and beautiful parts of of something or uh someone but it also uh, describes this completely unearned. It's just, it's just grace. So I, I love the idea of the one finally accepting grace, like spending, spending their whole life trying to earn it and uh, realizing that grace truly requires nothing of, of you or the one type or anybody else for that matter. So that was sort of the, the unlocking of this type and this song for me personally to, um, to, to have a greater understanding for what the experience of the one uh, feels like and looks like.
So the word grace became the, the centerpiece of this song. Um, you'll hear it in the chorus lyrics. Cause I spent my whole life searching desperately To find out that grace requires nothing Grace requires nothing of me so let's let's rewind the tape a little bit. Um, so the very, very first lyric, hold on for a minute, I believe I can fix this. The reason I stuck with those as the opening line is I wanted to say as much as I possibly could with uh, as few words and as conversationally as I possibly could. I didn't want them to necessarily sound like poetry. I wanted them to be direct and I wanted them to um, mean as much as they could in a very short length. So um, hold on for a minute is the, as I mentioned, the interruption of, uh, and if you listen to it from the perspective of this is a song being sung by one and it is a conversation being had between the one and their own inner critic. So I like that there is a major interruption. Like right away, the song starts out uh, with an interruption, like, hold on. Stop what you're saying. Hold on for a minute, cause I believe that we can fix this over time. And I believe I can fix this is a reference to um, the, the the need and the desire of the one to to fix the the brokenness that they see around them. They can zone in on the the imperfections of their surroundings and environments. And so um, I like the idea of an interruption leading to a solution. And I also like in the context of this conversation with the inner critic, I like the idea that um, I can fix this might even refer to the healthier part of that, which means I can fix this broken relationship between myself and the inner critic. And, and the following line is that every imperfection is a lie. So altogether, hold on for a minute, because I believe that we can fix this over time, that every imperfection is a lie. So the one believes that every imperfection is a lie. And what I liked about that is that I don't feel like the one needs the world to be perfect because they think they deserve it. I think it's actually the opposite. I feel like they they look at imperfection as it's not upholding um, the beauty that it is capable of. So the world around it is could be better, and they see they see the correct and right way and path forward. So I like the idea of the the one saying that every imperfection is a lie because it's almost like a it's almost like saying everything has more potential than it knows. And um, I thought that that was a, a, a gentler uh, judgment than uh, could be said otherwise. Those lyrics connect to the, the next set, which is... Or at least an interruption Now hold on, let me finish No, I'm not saying perfect exists in this life So that does a couple things. Uh, first of all, again, it acknowledges the interruption and then it actually interrupts again by saying, now hold on, let me finish. So I, I like that idea that, the, the, that they are so certain that um, what they have to say is a value that they, they need to um, speak over the person that they're speaking to, which in this case is their own inner critic. So it's almost like taking charge of, uh, of their own inner critic, which is, which is a very healthy and good thing to do. Again, I'm not saying that perfect exists in this life, but we'll only know for certain if we try. Those lyrics mean that it's not necessarily to make the world perfect around them. It's just that everything has the potential to be better. So why wouldn't we try to do our, our absolute very best? 
And I like that that could be read as a healthy perspective, or it could be read as a really unhealthy perspective. It could be read as judgmental to others, um, not trying, or even implying that that uh, anybody else might not be trying. But it could also be read as a very healthy perspective. Uh, like I said, having this conversation with your own inner critic and basically trying to convince your inner critic to loosen up and uh, to try to show up and be better. The chorus lyrics are... I want to sing a song worth singing. I'll write an anthem worth repeating. I want to feel the transformation, the melody of reformation. I, I want to sing a song worth singing. Not only does that nod to one of the handles of the one, which is the reformer, I thought uh, leans the song into the creative and maybe the looser heart of the one. And I want to sing a song worth singing and write an anthem. So the key word there is anthem. Because the ones are these natural born leaders, it just felt like the perfect word for a song about the one because anthems at their very best rally people together behind a cause or behind uh, some principle. And so uh, the idea of a one singing from that perspective uh, made, made a lot of sense. The word anthem just felt really important to the one type. So I was happy to be able to work it into the chorus. Also, the more I learned about the one, I learned about their passion for causes. And you'll even find out that a lot of politicians and um, social justice leaders resonate as a one. And that comes from this beautiful ideal that um, the world, like I said, could be better. And so um, I, I thought that the reference to an anthem encapsulates all of those uh, different aspects of the one. The list goes on forever for all the ways I could in my mind as if I could earn God's favor given time or at least congratulations um those lyrics are maybe the almost like the falling apart of the of the one and sort of being vulnerable and honest with uh, with themselves. And so I like the idea of, again, earning something that uh, is, is freely given, uh, as if I could earn God's favor given time, or at least congratulations. So you want to you wanna be pat on the head for the good you've done. And I think it's probably very vulnerable for, for any person, uh, especially a one, to, to admit to wanting those things. So this is, this is the moment in the, in the story where I wanted the character to just be brutally honest. Now I have learned my lesson, the price of this so-called perfection is everything. I've spent my whole life searching desperately to find out that grace requires nothing of me. Uh, so that sort of is the answer to the whole song. As I mentioned in the beginning of talking about lyrics, that the, the grace requires nothing of me is sort of the key, uh, at least um, in my understanding of the one. At their healthiest, I imagine that they would learn that lesson, that the, the price of their desperate attempts for perfection is, um, is costing them everything and um, trying to earn this thing that they, uh, that they already have, which is grace. Lastly, the lyric is...
The idea of holding it all more loosely and yet somehow much more dearly, I think that that is the the integration of the one, finally realizing that they've been holding on so, so, so tightly to this idea of, of correctness and trying to earn and be worthy of the good that they want in, in themselves and in the world. And that final line, that grace requires nothing of me, not only is that the, kind of the deep want and desire of the one, but it's also meant to resolve this, the song and the story as both inner critic and self finally saying the same thing and singing the same anthem or the same song. It's also said twice at the very end of the song to emphasize uh, that importance. So one of my absolute favorite parts about this project are what I am calling fingerprints. Before I began writing these songs, I sent an email out to my nearest and dearest friends and family members and folks that I admire and invited them to leave a fingerprint of sorts onto these nine Enneagram songs. First, I asked if they would be willing to do a little research and figure out what type they most identify with of the nine Enneagram types. And then I asked them if they would be kind enough to uh, send me a tiny recording of a sound that best represents them. This little sound fingerprint can be as simple as an iPhone recording or anything they wanted. Uh, birds chirping in their backyard, a single note on, on an old flute sitting in their closet, uh, or the sound of your workplace or singing in C sharp. Literally anything that means something to each of these people that means so much to me. And then I would take each of these recordings and assign them to their correct Enneagram type song and weave them into the fabric of that song. Uh, therefore, their fingerprint would represent them in, in this collection of songs. And it has just been so much fun getting to play with each of these sounds in the, in the background and atmosphere of, of each of these Enneagram songs. So I'm about to show you uh, each of the, the one contributions. Uh, so these are the fingerprints of folks in my life that were kind enough to send me sounds that are dominant in type one. The very first sound I received could not have been more perfect and fitting. It was from Father Richard Rohr, who was kind enough to record the sound of his meditation singing bowl. Which you will hear throughout the song. Um, I also pitched it up and created a, a keyboard patch uh, of that sound uh, that can play actual notes. I affectionately call it the Rohr bell. Get it? Like a doorbell? <laughs> okay, here's the melody that is played with the Rohr bell. And the next sound that I was sent was from my sister-in-law, Asha Belson, who was kind enough to send me the sound of a wine glass clinking on a recent trip to France. Uh, she was visiting the Palace of Versailles and uh, recorded this sound. So again, I manipulated the audio, pitch shifted it up, and created an arpeggiated melody that, uh, that plays through the final choruses of the song. The next sound that was sent to me was from my friend Isaac Slade from the band The Fray. He asked me what key the song was in and what tempo and sat down at his piano and just played some miscellaneous things in that key and tempo. And so without ever hearing the one song, he sent a, a couple little pieces of his piano performances and it was so fun to be able to layer that into the song. So I reversed some of that and um, created a little bit of a loop in some of the verses that sounds like this. Mm -hmm. 
And here is where it is in the context of the actual final song. Or at least an interruption. And the next sound is from my dear friend Alexandra Petsavis Rosenfeld, who was kind enough to send me uh, an early recording from the Glen Ellen Children's Chorus that she was a part of in the late 70s, early 80s. The next sound is actually a couple sounds sent from my friend Mikkel Hill. Uh, it was recorded by her husband and my dear friend TJ Hill. And uh, it is the sound of her checking things off of a to-do list, which is such a perfect one sound. So in the song, there is a lyric that says, but the list goes on forever of all the ways I could be better in my mind. So you will hear those pencil marks in that section of the song, as well as uh, underneath the, the cleaning supplies drums that I mentioned earlier on in the podcast. Mikhail also sent in the sound of the keyboard clicking, which is another great one sound. So that is also buried in the, the percussion and drums of the song. The next sound was sent in by my sister-in-law, Sarah Belson, who sent the sound of thunder in Wichita, which you can hear uh, in the climax of, of the final chorus of the song. Oddly enough, Sarah's husband, Will, also identifies as an Enneagram One and was kind enough to send a sound of their little boy, Oliver, who is my nephew, and him uh, giggling. I love the sound, so it's, uh, it's hidden in, in a few places of the song. The next sound is not a fingerprint. While I was working on this song in my studio, there was this bird for about two weeks straight while I was writing this song that just would continually fly into the window over and over and over. And so I decided that um, probably this bird's a one and really just wanted to be a part of the song. So I did work in the sound of the bird gently smacking into the window uh, and I layered it into the again into the drums that you hear throughout the song but this is this is the raw sound of uh, the Enneagram one bird <laughs> for the record I did try to do everything I could to uh, convince this bird not to fly into the window and hurt itself uh, thankfully it did not hurt itself so no birds were harmed in the making of this song the next sound is another Easter egg, not necessarily a fingerprint. Uh, each of the Enneagram types have an animal that is associated with them, and that's more of a fun overlay. It has nothing to do with the, the, the actual Enneagram or the heart or anything else important, but it is a fun thing to think about. And the barking dog is the Enneagram one animal. So I thought, what better way to serve that than to add my dog Wilco uh, into into the drums of this song as well. So I'll play in a second here, I'll play you the whole drum kit that is made up of cleaning supplies and pencils, checking things off lists and dogs barking and birds hitting windows. And here are all of the sounds that make up the quote drums in, in this song. So in addition to those fingerprint sounds from friends and family, I knew that each Enneagram song needed to contain guest musicians that identify as that particular type. So for this song, uh, every guest musician that you hear, which I'm about to detail, identifies as a one. 
and I'm going to stick to this rule throughout the whole Enneagram series where the, the guest band on each, each Enneagram song will be made up of only the Enneagram type that they're playing on. With the obvious exception that I myself am an Enneagram 9 and will be playing on all nine of the songs. Um, that sounds like an egomaniac when I say it out loud, but obviously uh, these songs are my attempt to write from the perspective of each of these types. But the guest musicians that will be playing on each of these songs will, will bring their, their true Enneagram essence to every song, I'm confident. Speaking of, all of the violins that you hear on this song were recorded by self-proclaimed Enneagram One, uh, my friend Ross Donaldson, who makes music under the name Ross Christopher. He was kind enough to let me basically throw him all of these different violin melodies, and he would continue to record layer by layer and uh, making up part of my one orchestra. Huge thanks to Ross for such beautiful performances. The next member of my Enneagram One Orchestra is Melissa Bach, who is a wonderful cellist from Chicago who I've gotten to know over the last uh, five or six years at least. Um, she is so wonderful to work with. Um, she's recorded several Sleeping At Last songs and uh, was kind enough to come to my studio and let me throw, I think, about a dozen different cello ideas at her, and she played every single one of them beautifully and ad-libbed beautifully, and so this is the accumulation of those ideas. Melissa was also kind enough to send in a fingerprint sound as well. This is the sound of a loon call in uh, northern Minnesota. So the last guest on this song is my dear friend Chris Bethay. Chris actually mixed this song, and he is an uh, incredibly talented producer, mixer, engineer, and I thought, what better way to uh, complete a Enneagram One song than through the ears of an Enneagram One himself? So Chris is the one who mixed this song and did such a beautiful job pulling everything together. And I'm just grateful to call him my friend. So lastly, my friend Chris Hewitts, who was kind enough to give you the, the brief Enneagram description at the front, as well as an overview of the Enneagram One type. Uh, we talked about what those things are, and um, Chris was kind enough to uh, explain the why behind the Enneagram One, as well as some words of encouragement to the, the Enneagram Ones out there. So if you resonate with the One, I think you will find Chris's words incredibly hopeful and inspiring. And I hope very much that the, the song uh, has brought some sort of justice to your heart and uh, the, the beautiful ways in which you see the world. So here again is Chris Hewitts. When we describe somebody in terms of a caricature, um, what we're, we're missing out on is, is the why, like the why behind type. So I, I actually come from sort of the, the, the school of thought that we're born with a dominant type. And, and wherever we're sort of born on that circle, on the drawing of the Enneagram, that becomes sort of our point of view. It's how we see the rest of the world. And in fact, it's how we practice that by seeing ourselves. 
And so I, I like to do a lot of work with types around what's behind type. And, and I think there's, there's two things that are, are, are pretty accessible there. One of them is what's referred to as the childhood wound of each Enneagram. Now, I, I think the folks who've developed the Ennea app have, have maybe done the best in terms of concisely narrating those. And I think you can actually download the Ennea app for free. But the, the, the childhood wound for the, the person who's dominant in type one has to do um, with this wound to their, their intelligence center. And so for them, that's their gut, that's their body. And, and, and it's as if it was a body blow that they just weren't good enough. They just weren't living up to the, to the household rules. They were being inconsistent with their behavior. And, and so they felt that the rules may have also been inconsistent because as, as little boys and little girls, they're, they're striving, they're, they're doing their best. Like they're, they're so perceptive of what is true and they're, it just kills them to not be honest that if they broke a rule, if they messed up a rule, if they, they didn't know what a rule was and they were criticized or punished for it, it was devastating to them. Now, I, I, I want to say this about the childhood wounds. I, I want to say that this might not be the best language because if you're born into a type, then these childhood wounds aren't what creates type. But really, these childhood wounds are the confirmation bias of your type to yourself. And if we can understand that, then what we're actually doing is we're letting our, our, our parent or parents, our caregiver or caregivers off the hook for hopefully having done their best job. And as little kids, not having the psycho logical sort of construct to accurately and adequately name our reality and our environment, we put this on our caregiver. Now there's a, another overlay and, and the Enneagram Institute folks um, talk a little bit about how object relations theory also relates to Enneagram type. And object relations theory is really how as infants, we become aware that we are not our parent or parents. And it's the first sort of step into claiming our own sense of self and then the parent or parents become that first object and so in the enneagram institute sort of overlay they suggest that 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 first caregiver that first parent either becomes a sort of symbol of nurturing love or protective love and again for those who are dominant in type one it's the protective caregiver that um really ends up frustrating these little boys and these little girls who are, who are dominant in type one and that frustration is this you had more protective love to give me. You didn't keep me safe from not knowing what the rules were or weren't. And so I didn't know which ones I was and wasn't breaking. And so in that frustration, the ones actually sort of double down on that sort of protective stance. And that's why ones can also really be such a fierce protectors of those they care for, uh, guardians of, of the rules and, uh, and, and really hold people accountable. And, and that's, one of their great gifts, but to know that about yourself sort of helps you understand the why behind these impulses, these drives, these things that end up creating a lot of inner resentment, um, inner frustration, and then this painfully um, unattainable, unrealizable sense of, of perfection that that the one will, will never really be able to live into. And, uh, and that, that bums them out more than anything. So what's important here really at the end of the day is that we actually do practice and show compassion for ourselves. And when we learn to practice compassion for ourselves, of course, we become compassionate for, for those um, in our lives. I, I would say if you're dominant in type one, or if you have a close friend or your partner's dominant in type one, um, you need to be reassured that you're good enough, that it's okay, 
that um, this preoccupation with your own flaws um, shouldn't become sort of this this mental addiction, but because you're you're no more flawed than than any of us. And in fact, if you're dominant type one, it's your flaws that make you beautiful. And if you could just rest in that and let that wash over you, if you could actually receive that, I, I think that would really sort of silence that inner critic. I, I think that would um, sort of dispel these drives of, 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 of pain that you feel when, when things are broken in your life, when things aren't right or, or fixed in the world. And um, it would really let you rest. Like this, this resentment that the ones feel is their, their mental fixation. It's their mental preoccupation with um, them not feeling like they're good enough. And, and really, you're, you are, you're, you're better than good enough. And in fact, if you're dominant type one, you're, you're the best people we know. So uh, be kind to yourself and uh, let yourself rest in that. Because as you learn to rest, um, everybody else around you also receives the gift of that. A massive thanks to Chris for the, his generosity in explaining the the type one in, in such beautiful detail. Thank you so much, Chris. Please buy Chris's book, The Sacred Enneagram, which is available everywhere. It's a really special book. And uh, I think over the next several months, as these Enneagram songs continue to be released, I think that you will find it as a very, very helpful uh, companion uh, if you are curious about learning more about the Enneagram from Chris's perspective. So thank you so much for listening. I, I cannot thank you enough for uh, for being curious about how these songs came about, and uh, especially these Enneagram songs, which I've been researching and working on for, for quite a while now. Uh, for all of you Atlas subscribers, thank you so much for your patience. I, I really want to serve each of these songs as best I can, and um, it means a lot that I, I finally get to release them into the wild and that you are kind enough to uh, want to hear about how they uh, were born. So thank you very much. Uh, in the show notes, you will find a link to Chris's book. You'll find a link to the song, which is available now everywhere that uh, music is. And uh, you will find a link to a couple other things I mentioned that I cannot remember right now. Anyway, thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you about the next song. So I'll close this out with, uh, with playing the new song one more time for you guys. Here is Atlas One. over time that every imperfection is a lie or at least an interruption now hold on let me finish no I'm not saying perfect exists in this life
Nothing 